Welcome to Pushback. I'm Aaron Maté. Joining me is Antonio Gistosi. He is a senior research fellow at the Royal United Services Institute and visiting professor at King's College London. His books include The Islamic State in Khorasan and The Taliban at War. Professor Gistosi, welcome to Pushback. Thank you. I want to start with how this war was won by the Taliban. How did the Taliban go from being defeated or ousted in the early months of the uh, U.S. war in Afghanistan to victory without any air force 20 years later? I think it was a mix of two main factors, uh, the incompetence of the enemies and the fact that the Taliban were able to evolve during the previous 20 years. You know, they faced very difficult conditions of operating, in particular, as you mentioned, uh, the very strong air superiority of the enemy. I call the fact that the Americans pulled out, uh, and with that also their, uh, you know, air support for the Afghan security forces was a major contributing factor, not only because the Taliban felt emboldened, but also because it turned out the Afghan army was not able to fight or willing to fight without stronger cover. And the Americans tried to do something remotely, uh, especially the peak of their resurgence of their support was during the Battle of uh, Lashkarga uh, a few days before the uh, the fall of Kabul. But that turned out not to uh, not to be enough. And and that was a major factor. Basically, the Afghan army was not you know lost completely the will to fight. Uh, they were totally dependent on American air support as long as other things, especially American logistics. But I would think the lack of air support was the number one factor. On, on their side, the Taliban were very good at developing a political military strategy for winning the war. So militarily, they, you know, adapted, as I mentioned, and the main, the key to adaptation was uh, the uh, ability to develop um, hybrid tactics. So it's not that the Taliban have become as efficient as Hezbollah, for example, in this. Uh, but you know they they made considerable progress, and um, they don't face with the Israelis anyways. And also they don't need to be as good or as as Hezbollah. And they they they, they actually been the, the displaying these abilities for some years. But by May this year, clearly they've been able to. Uh, conceive an integrated strategy, coordinate different components of the Taliban across different regions, and integrate not only the uh, the different units that were trained into habitat, but also manage to make good use of second-line units that uh, had not been trained. You know, they were not quite as well trained or equipped, but they managed to integrate them into the strategy. And these units played an important role in the victory as well. So overall, I would say the Taliban managed to integrate the military also very well. You know, the other aspects of their evolution. Again, they displayed uh, these increasing capabilities already in, in recent years, uh, where they were able sometimes to launch synchronized attacks against cities, for example, uh, for a couple of years at least. That was not really noticed very much, whether in Washington or in Kabul, but I think they were experimenting, they were testing, you know. And of course, by May, they had uh, fully integrated the new capabilities uh, in their strategic thinking. The other element of success, as I mentioned, was the integration of politics into uh, the military strategy. 
So key to victory was the ability to negotiate uh, deals uh, a bit everywhere in Afghanistan, starting from the northeast and then going around the country. They were not alone in that. You know, they had uh, brokers and mediators that had them uh, a lot, like the Russians, the Iranians, the Pakistanis. Probably there were also offers of cash as incentives for those who switched sides. But anyway, you know, they were quite effective in, in integrating military and, and politics, contrary to the other side, you know, to the Afghan government and uh, their allies who, you know, clearly politically they were completely lost and militarily had not really evolved for many years. So I think by then the, the Taliban, although they were in terms of numbers, not only didn't have, of course, an air force, but in terms of numbers were badly outnumbered, even if you account for more corruption that, you know, was admitted that was there in the security forces and the actual numbers were less than we thought they were. It's clear they had several times the number of Taliban in terms of between army, police, uh, affiliated militias, special forces, special militias. The CIA transitioned to Afghan control 27,000 well-trained, well-equipped militiamen. You know, that alone was a big chunk of people, uh, mostly concentrated in the east and the southeast, but still, you know, quite a, quite a large number of people. Despite that, uh, the Taliban war, so it's quite remarkable. I think this will go down in the annals of military history. And can you explain a bit what the U.S. strategy was, including working with warlords <laughs> such as the Northern Alliance? Well, the Americans haven't really been working with warlords for quite uh, a long time. You know, they did it in 2001 to overthrow the Taliban, and then gradually they abandoned them. And it was not a uh, easy divorce. You know, uh, people now forget, but it was very tense around 2003 and 2004 when the Americans started dumping all these people, uh, some more than others, especially those who were less cooperative. For example, you know, some of the Pashtun uh, warlords or strongmen were more willing to accommodate and they were uh, uh, integrated into the political system or given a chance to integrate. Some of the others uh, were not as willing to cooperate or were not as constructive. I think the best example is that of Marshal Fahim, who was the number one uh, player in 2001. You know, he was leading the uh, Jamiati militia, especially the Panshiris, into Kabul, and he was the most powerful man in the country. And he was made vice president, interim vice president, and interim uh, defense minister for that. That reflected his power. And his colleagues became minister of interior, head of the intelligence. So they really controlled the entire security apparatus at the beginning. But by 2003, uh, it was uh, falling off grace uh, because it was resisting the mobilization uh, of the militias. And they were not willing to surrender the weapons. In fact, they never surrendered them. And she was still full of weaponry uh, when the Taliban captured it now. Uh, they stockpiled tanks, artillery, a lot of stuff there because of course they were not happy about the deal that the Americans were kind of trying to push through. You know, they had agreed to, if you like, a kind of oligarchic republic at the beginning. But then Kazai was supposed to be figurehead presiding over this, became more assertive and the Americans backed him up. So Fahim was very upset and tried a pronunciamiento, uh, you know, tried to uh, gather the military leaders behind himself and basically forced Karzai to keep him as Minister of Defense after Karzai told him probably we'll have to go, you know, the Americans don't want you. Uh, 
and of course the coup never happened or the pronunciamento never happened because the Americans made very clear to Fahim that that would not be acceptable. Uh, and that was one example, but others who were dumped were General Dosto, you know, and, and, and many others. So, um, you know, it was like, um, I think it's exaggerated, you know, the degree to which the Americans cooperated with the warlords. It was true in 2001, and the relations were still good in 2002, early 2003, but then it started, they came pretty fast. When the U.S. did this surge in 2009, 2010, sending tens of thousands of more troops under Obama, we were still told back then that the U.S. had a chance to win this war, and that's what it would take just to bring in more troops. Do you think that that was true, that the U.S. still had a chance to win the war then, or was this war lost for the U.S. long ago? I think probably Obama's biggest mistake was doing the surge because that compound and that really established, firmly established the dependence of the Afghan security force from the Americans. You know, they thought they could uh, win a closest war against the Taliban, but that's a basic mistake. And an insurgency doesn't have a center you can capture and win the war once and for all, especially if you have a safe haven abroad. So with the Taliban having at the time a safe haven in Pakistan and even starting to develop one in Iran, uh, there was no way they were going to win, you know. So, in fact, the surge had an impact in the south, especially Helmand and Kandahar, where it was mostly concentrated. But what the Taliban did was to shift the force eastwards. And then things started really going pear-shaped in the east. So, overall, there was no gain, you know. They gained ground temporarily in the south, but they lost ground in the east. And then it became clear that it would have needed up to a million people, uh, soldiers, to really crush the Taliban push them out into Pakistan, and then they would have waited there. So, you know, I think a military victory was not possible. What they achieved was to, first of all, to, to accelerate the evolution of the Taliban, one, uh, and two, uh, to make the Afghan security forces ultra-dependent on American support, which in the end is the reason why they lost the war. So I think the idea that you can uh, win a civil war with a foreign intervention is, is wrong. You know, because the moment you do that, what you achieve is to completely delegitimize the host government. In government, they need the big foreign army to fight for it. It's, it just demonstrates that it's a weak government that has no, has no staying power. I think our understanding of legitimacy has to be, you know, uh, become more sophisticated. And legitimacy doesn't derive by the fact that Washington or the international community endorses the government. The first level of legitimacy is staying power. If you don't have staying power, people will not be with you. Even people who might, in principle, like you more than the others, they will say, as they did in Afghanistan, this guy might be nice, but you know, it won't be here for long. The Taliban are tougher. The Taliban will be here in 10 years or 20 years. This guy will, you know, is backed by foreign powers. They will not be here forever. They will go, and therefore, there's no point in supporting these guys. In terms of opium production, as I understand it, the Taliban, when it ruled in the 1990s, had pretty much wiped out opium production, or at least for the most part. That changed under U.S. occupation. How did that happen? And explain the dynamics uh, of opium um, in the context of the U.S. occupation. Well, overall, it's clear that the, uh, the drug economy in Afghanistan, the real takeoff was 2001. And one of the reasons is because, of course, among those who oppose the Taliban most fiercely were smugglers, you know, the, the ones that really were losing out to the, to the Taliban. Uh, 
uh, so quite a few of them, especially in the South, were key players in the uh, alliance that uh, brought the Taliban down, with, of course, with huge American support, especially air support. Um, and then, of course, when, as I mentioned, it, the Bonn Agreement resulted in this oligarchy republic, the oligarchs were a mix of people, uh, all having some kind of economic interest, mostly what we would describe as illegal, because when Afghanistan was legal and illegal, it's always been a, a kind of, you know, fuzzy. Uh, and so, quite a few of them were drug smugglers, you know. Um, I will not mention the names, but all the way up uh, in the structure of the Islamic Republic, there were drug smugglers, uh, gem smugglers, uh, weapon smugglers, uh, and whatever, you know. And people, of course, stealing from the coffers of the state. It was really an oligarchic republic, or if you like, a, a aristocratic republic. With that, I mean that the people who signed the original uh, deal were above the law, you know, the, they had immunity. They could do whatever they wanted, they would not be prosecuted, as long as they, you know, uh, remain part of the deal. When there were issues, President Karzai first, and then Ghani would send the Attorney General, uh, because of course, all of them had, you know, a lot of things to hide. So there was the typical warning, you know, when people are falling off, they would receive a visit from the Attorney General saying, we are about to start an investigation on all your crimes, which are plenty, and we have plenty of evidence of it. So that's how the system was being kept together. So let me ask you about ISIS-K, this group that took responsibility for the suicide attack at the Kabul airport that killed dozens of Afghan civilians and 13 US soldiers. Who is ISIS-K and how did they get into Afghanistan in the first place? Well, there were some uh, Afghans and Pakistanis who had volunteered to go to Iraq and Syria uh, years ago, so before ISK even appeared. Some of them were with uh, 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 with what then became Arati uh, al-Sham, so al-Nusra originally. Some were with the Al-Qaeda in Iraq, which became the Islamic State. When the Islamic State came about, quite a lot of foreigners, even people who had been with al-Nusra, defected to uh, what would be the, become the Islamic State. Uh, and so there were a lot of Afghans, relatively large number you know, compared to, but the large majority of those who were there joined the Islamic State. So Afghans and, and Pakistanis. And then they started going back, you know, going back to their countries. Some would have gone back anyway, some were sent deliberately by the Islamic State leadership to establish a foothold. Then when they went back, uh, they tried, you know, they tried to explore the environment to see who would be interested in joining that because the numbers were not huge. You know, we're talking about hundreds of people going back, not thousands. But they found that there were, you know, both in the TTP, in the Pakistani TTP and the Afghan Taliban, people who were dissatisfied with the leadership for various region, reasons. Uh, you know, there were rivalries with the TTP over leadership, uh, etc. And then there were rivalries uh, within the Afghan Taliban, especially, I would say, regional rivalries and also sectarian rivalries. You know, there were, in, in Eastern Afghanistan, a lot of Salafis, and the Taliban leadership was not very happy with the Salafis, even if they'd been recruiting them. So there were tension there. And many of the Salafis uh, joined then later uh, the Islamic State. There were also people who were not Salafis, but basically they were looking for promotion. They, they had, they thought they'd been overlooked for promotion within the Taliban. They, they thought they were deserving more and better. And the Islamic State offered them uh, fast, fast track promotion. So um, 
they they join. So basically, it was a small, relatively small number, small core of people had been there uh, in Syria and Iraq, and a much larger number of people who left the TDP, left the Taliban, uh, and joined. And then some Central Asians who had been into Al Qaeda, but thought that the Islamic State was the future, that Al Qaeda was finished, really, and the Islamic State seemed to be quite wealthy and well resourced. So they thought maybe these are the guys who can really enable us to bring jihad finally to Central Asia, as opposed to, you know, forever fighting somebody else's wars. So they were attracted by that. And, you know, people of various uh, regions, you know, there were a few Indian Mujahideen, so to speak, and, and some others. For the same reason, they were attracted by the image of great success that Islamic State had at the time, and also by the fact that they seemed to be very wealthy to have a lot of money. So they're not just greedy, you know, they, they just thought that there are jihads back home, which have been waiting for a long time, could finally take off because Islamic State seems to be much more resourceful than Al Qaeda had been. And who was funding ISIS-K? Well, uh, you know, ISK, despite their, you know, uh, hardline and extremist uh, profile, they're quite pragmatic. They've been taking money from different sources, um, you know, depending on the issues of the moment. In part, of course, the uh, the, the mother organization in uh, in Syria, the Caliphate, has been sending money, and there's been ups and downs in how much money they were able to send. Of course, overall, it's been going down simply because the financial resources of the early days are no longer there, but they're still sending money. And uh, uh, in recent years, there was a main source of money because the Islamic State in Khorasan. Saudi Arabia. No, I mean, in, uh, I mean in, in, uh, in recent years, uh, the, uh, the leadership of the caliphate was the main source of money. Okay. What I mean is that you know, at one point, there, were, there was a lot of money coming from the Gulf, and it's difficult to know exactly who, you know, people would mention Saudi Arabia, but what it means, private donors, state donors, is difficult to establish. You know, of course, you're not, not going to find any kind of evidence of that. They were mentioning that those kind of sources. They also had some local uh, revenue raising. They were able to, for example, uh, get money from some mining operations. Uh, but that that is gone now, you know, because they lost the territorial control they had at one point has been lost. So they don't, they're not able to raise significant amount of money locally. So they still get money from the caliphate. And recently there was an upsurge in funding, which I haven't been able to explain yet. It may come from the Gulf again. Um, you know, from time to time, they also collaborated with the Pakistani services in exchange for leaving Pakistan alone, for example. And also because, you know, they have their logistical area is in Pakistan, you know, for supplies, and they can start their training camps in Pakistan, in remote parts of Pakistan. They have, um, uh, you know, it's where they procure much of their logistics, because, you know, the logistics doesn't come from the mountains of Afghanistan, it's to come from somewhere else. Most of it comes from Pakistan. So they, they need to have some kind of deal making there in order to keep those flows going. You know, otherwise the Afghan, the, so the, the Pakistani security establishment will be able to probably uh, block that. Since you mentioned Pakistan, is it fair to say that Pakistani support for the Taliban was integral to the Taliban's victory? Well, it certainly helped them a lot. And if we had to rank, uh, you know, sources of support for the Taliban in the last few months, 
Pakistan will be at the top. It's not the only one. It's not been the only one. Others have contributed uh, significantly. A lot of people contribute in different qualities, but the, you know, Pakistan was the number one source by quite a margin, uh, both in financial terms, in, in terms of logistics, etc. And also, you know, basically, you look at the map. You know, um, the border is, uh, you know, is essential. The Taliban, of course, have uh, been based there. That they sit even there. The fact of having the leadership there, of course, was a major enabler. Um, even when at one point the Iranians during the war were almost taking over the Pakistan in terms of support, they were not able to play the same the same role because, of course, logistics matter. You know, sending supplies from Iran all the way to Badakhshan is complicated. You know, it's a long way. You spend a lot of money paying smugglers. It's possible. You know, in Afghanistan, Afghanistan is largely a kind of smugglers, you know, so you can smuggle everything everywhere, but the smugglers don't work for free, you know, they want to be paid. And uh, you spend a lot of money to get stuff all the way to Badakhshan, all, all the way to Kunar. Whereas, of course, you know, Pakistan is much easier, you know, because the border is so long, uh, you know, for, for uh, operating from Pakistan is essential. I think it's been essential for the Taliban to be successful. And one thing I never understood about this is that Pakistan is a U.S. ally. So how did Pakistan play such an integral role in supporting the force that defeated the U.S. while still being on the U.S. side? What am I missing there? Well, I think, you know, one has to think out of the box to understand this, you know. For the Americans to go into Afghanistan was largely acceptable to regional powers as long as the purpose was punishing those responsible for 9-11. When the Americans started making clear that they were there for good, they were going to stay, that upset a lot of uh, regional countries. Instead, they would say, except for India, it upset all of them. Uh, and, you know, to understand it, you have to think of the 1980s when the Cubans, uh, and a little bit the Soviets, poked their nose into Central America. Uh, and there was a revolution in Nicaragua, one could argue, well, after all, the Nicaraguans have the right to do whatever they want by their own country. You know, why would the Americans uh, be bothered? You know, it's not their right to decide what the Nicaraguans want or don't want. But that's not the way Washington took it. You know, Washington argued that's our garden. You know, we don't allow Cubans, Russians there under no circumstances. So we we will retaliate and we retaliate very hard until they hold them back, at least. And that was the same kind of reaction in the region when the Americans established themselves apparently for forever or for a long term in Afghanistan. If you're China, if you're Russia, if you're Iran, but also if you're Pakistan, and even the Saudis were not happy. The Saudis were not worried about the Americans per se being there, but the kind of message that the Americans took there, establishing some kind of democracy in Afghanistan after Iraq, you know, the, the Iraqi democracy was the bigger disaster in Saudi foreign policy forever. You know, that empowered the Shias in Iraq. For the Saudi, that's the number one disaster ever. So hearing something about that, like that, about Afghanistan, and seeing how the Iranians in the early years, they were quite successful at exploiting the new democracy. You know, not only the Shias, but also the Iranians had a lot of allies among the Tajiks. You know, the Iranians were quite influential in the shade of American occupation for quite a few years. Then gradually they were cut back, you know, and that's why they also got quite upset. But the, actually the first country to start sending support 
to the Taliban uh, even before the Pakistan was Saudi Arabia, because the Saudis are very worried about you know the Saudis. You will imagine are not particularly fond of democracy, and especially democracy in Islamic countries is you know quite a challenge for them. And you know the idea that Afghanistan should have a democracy like this you know uh, mountain country, very poor. If that worked there, how would you justify an absolute monarchy in Saudi Arabia? So they were, you know, very critical of what the Americans were doing, especially after Iraq. You know, for them, Iraq was demonstration. The Americans don't know what they're doing. You know, what are they up to? Do they know what they're up to? And therefore, that Afghanistan would end up the same way. You know, empowering the Iranians, making them stronger, more capable. And if they are ever able to establish democracy, they would undermine, delegitimize the monarchy in Saudi Arabia and in the rest of the Gulf, because, you know, the, the other Gulf countries are not democracies either by any stretch of the imagination, but they're all absolute monarchies, yeah? So uh, the Pakistanis felt at the beginning, okay, fine, we need to let them in, but they say, I don't know if it's true, I wasn't there in the meetings, that the, the, the Bush administration promised they would keep uh, Pakistan's interests close to their heart, they would, you know, respect those interests. And then what happened is that the new elite in power uh, completely pushed out every Pakistani influence, especially at the center. And instead, Indian influence expanded dramatically, and Iran's too. And it, Iran is not as bad as India from the Pakistani perspective, but especially when their influence grows at Pakistan's expense, they're not happy. You know, so they saw this situation where the Indians were everywhere, uh, parties very close to the Indians were dominating the government, the Iranians had the other Shia government, and Pashtun nationalists, probably the worst enemy of Pakistan, were everywhere. You know, they were part of the coalition, and they were being appointed as governors on the border. So, you know, at the same time, you had some resurgence of Baluchi activists in Pakistan first, then you had the TTP. And to be honest, um, you know, there was something too about the allegations of the Pakistanis that TTP and, and Baluchis were getting support from or to Afghanistan. It's obvious that there was support coming through, you know, weapons, money was coming through there. Probably, I don't think it was a lot. And in fact, you know, these insurgents are not being overall terribly effective, you know. But anyway, you know, that added, you know, uh, insult to injury <laughs> for the Pakistanis, you know. And it's always exaggerated, you know, but I think this idea of you know, uh, Afghanistan become a security threat was not completely unrealistic. You know, there was an element of truth in it. Plus, you know, consider this, that the Pakistani military establishment uh, consumes most of the country's resources, you know, and has a vested interest in, you know, if they have a chance of exaggerating the threat, the security threat to the country in doing that, you know, as long as there is a little bit of possibility, they are in a position to influence the media for sure, you know, uh, and, you know, this kind of paranoia translates into, uh, you know, greater military budget. So, you know, since they want, uh, uh, you know, they, they, they want uh, reject that. So I think it's, it's a complex uh, set of factors, but it's not, in general speaking, not in Pakistan's interest to have America permanently based in Afghanistan because of the stabilization it brings and also if that is associated with growing India, uh, in origin, even Iranian influence. I want to ask you about a controversy that 
dominated the U.S. last summer, and then it died quickly when uh, there was just no evidence for it. This was this allegation that Russia was paying bounties to the mm -hmm. Taliban to kill U.S. soldiers. This emerged after Trump signed a deal with the Taliban to withdraw from Afghanistan. And it was a controversy for a while. It was widely accepted here just on faith, even though there, you know, as more reporting came out, it became clear there wasn't a strong evidentiary basis for it. What did you think of this allegation that Russia was paying bounties to the Taliban to kill U.S. troops? Well, I, I know for a fact that Russia was supporting the Taliban. I don't think their intent was specifically to get Americans killed. I think uh, their thinking behind that was, you know, they did their own evaluations, you know. Uh, what is the best tool to exercise influence in Afghanistan? Who is the winning horse there? They tried different things. They tried this uh, northern militia with whom they had relations in the 90s after the collapse of the Soviet Union. They didn't deliver much. I remember the Russian complaining that these guys had not been able to get even a single contract for the Russian, the reconstruction, for example, you know. Uh, so that didn't deliver. Then they tried even the Islamic party, uh, and that didn't work either. You know, though ideologically there was absolutely no sympathy, but they, they thought it could be a useful horse for them. Then they thought, you know, maybe, you know, now that Karzai is not very friendly with America anymore, maybe we can insert ourselves. And later when Ghani and, uh, uh, Washington did, did not get along that much anymore. They also considered this, you know, maybe we could drive a wedge between the two instead of ourselves, offer something to Kabul in order to split them from Washington. But at the end of the day, when they did their own evaluation, they came to the conclusion that, you know, the Afghan state is doomed. It can survive. They said the corruption is just so extreme that it's so dysfunctional that it can possibly survive, you know, and the Americans leave or further reduce the commitment, it will collapse very quickly. There's no, no staying power. Whereas the Taliban, although we don't particularly like them, you know, they're staying power. So they are the ones who will be there in the future. Therefore, we should build up relations with them and they can perhaps be useful because at least we have some common enemies, such as the Islamic State, you know. So I think the role of the Islamic State change the perception of the Taliban from being an enemy for Russia to a potential ally because they thought, anyway, they have a vested interest in fighting them, they're already fighting them, so we could help them, and that also comes to our benefit. Uh, and it did work to some extent, you know, and uh, because the Islamic State also had a lot of traction in those years with the Central Asians, most of the Central Asians either joined or aligned with the Islamic State, but Russia was quite good, you know, because that allowed them, you know, to get the Taliban to fight against the Islamic State, but at the same time against many of the Central Asians. Quite a few of them were killed by the Taliban, not because the Taliban wanted to help the Russians, just because, you know, they were enemies, their own enemies at that point. So whether that translates into bounties, I think the, the bounty history, the way it came out, is not very realistic. Because by the time it came out, by the time it is alleged that it took place, there weren't actually that many Americans around. It was very difficult for the Taliban to say, we're going to kill guys, because the chance of that happening we are mostly by chance, you know. Uh, for example, uh, one guy could be assassinated in Kabul by some uh, assassination team, but it was very difficult to plan this kind of stuff because you never know, you know, uh, uh, you know, with the kind of level of security in Kabul, the chance of having 
being in a position to kill an American at that time was one in 1,000. You know, the Taliban were doing a lot of stuff. Of course, they perhaps had Americans at the top of the list, but basically the chance of one of the agents being in a position to pull the trigger and kill one of these guys was so remote that, you know, I don't think they would even think about a bounty if there was one. And most of the, almost all the Americans who died, died as a result of either accident, and of course that's not the Russians, or as a result of um, night raids, which they initiated. And sometimes the night raids, uh, or this, uh, even day raids, were basically special force raids. The Taliban had no way of predicting where they would happen. You know, so you do a raid and sometimes things go wrong, one guy gets killed. But the Taliban were not in a position to plan that, you know. The, the initiative for those raids were entirely in American hands. So if there was a bounty, and I think the Taliban were in any case in a position to, you know, uh, to benefit from that. So if that allegation was invented, where do you think it came from? There's speculation that basically it was concocted by officials inside the Afghan government, inside the Afghan uh, national security apparatus to try to uh, manufacture public support in the U.S. for the U.S. to stay and not withdraw from Afghanistan? It's possible. It's very difficult to know where it could come from. I would imagine probably there was something, you know, some evidence of some money being paid, which I think it was probably too, because as I mentioned, the Russians had a relation with the Taliban, they were paying them, they were sending weapons. And then probably to make it more attractive and more uh, interesting for the media, you know, they had some flavoring to it, you know, like they often do, even today, you know, read uh, reports from Afghanistan, you can see that perhaps there's an element of truth, but 90% embellishment just to make it more appetizing. So I would imagine something like that, you know, some partial report about some kind of money changing hand, and then, you know, some uh, embellishment or a lot of embellishment to make it more attractive. So let me ask you about the future of the Afghan government under the Taliban. You had Ashraf Ghani, the U.S.-backed president. He fled. But others have stayed, uh, like Hamid Karzai, the first uh, Afghan president under U.S. occupation, and Abdullah Abdullah, who ran against Ghani in the election. It was a controversial outcome with U.S. backing Ghani prevailed. But Abdullah Abdullah has also stayed, and, and they have talked about wanting to help form uh, a coalition government, wanting to be a part of Afghanistan's future. Do you think they have a role in the future of Afghanistan? And do you think that the Taliban is receptive to working with figures like them? I think the, the plan of the Taliban's political leadership a few months back was, you know, they actually like Zalman uh, Khalidah's plan because one of the things that the Taliban's political leadership always feared most was its own military leaders. Because I think they correctly understood that if they are kind of revolution, they don't use this term, you know, I, I, I call it revolution, but they wouldn't call it like that. If the revolution came to power to a military victory, the people would be empowered eventually would have been the military leaders. Yeah, because, you know, you win against America, you, in this case, you win a blitzkrieg against a much larger army. Uh, the guys who organized, planned that, and led that often from the battlefield are the real heroes. The politicians who negotiated, you know, got the Americans out and were trying to, you know, uh, uh, lay the diplomatic ground, they're not going to look as good, you know. And, and that's what we see today is actually that the political leaders are really struggling to stay on top of uh, 
the military leaders. I don't know whether they will succeed in doing that. You know, they are very much under pressure. So it was their, their interest in getting some kind of interim government as Kalidad has agreed to kind of try to, to bring into place because that would have frozen the military confrontation, it would have frozen the military leaders, and then they would be uh, fully empowered. Yes, they would have had to share power uh, with uh, other people, but probably at the end of the day, would have had more power that way and more stable than now being at the mercy of the military leaders. Then the names are necessary, not necessarily that, that important from them. Uh, they would prefer to uh, share power with people wouldn't have a checkered past, you know, because all the top figures of the Islamic Republic have a, you know, controversial reputation to say the least, you know. Centering in the eyes of the Taliban, but not only. So for the Taliban having some second layer people, maybe linked to the top leaders, you know, but new faces, uh, you know, not so compromised, would be preferable. And how about the uh, impact of US sanctions? Already the Taliban is accusing the US of violating the agreements that they signed in Doha to bring the war to an end by imposing these sanctions, uh, freezing Afghan money. What will the impact on Afghanistan be if uh, these sanctions prevail and are not undone by the Biden administration? Well, you know, if we're talking about the fact that Taliban on the terrorist list, uh, the impact is uh, going to be that the Taliban will have to look elsewhere. You know, basically, if the Taliban don't get anything from Washington, from Europe, uh, so no recognition, no money, including the money that technically is Afghan government money, you know, held in, uh, in the US, then basically have no reason for well, doing anything useful for either Washington or, or, or the Europeans. So basically, at that point, I think the Chinese will get a very good deal in terms of, you know, buying Afghanistan very cheap. Uh, they will uh, take over. Perhaps some other country in the region will contribute. The Qataris might have the resources. I don't know whether they are so enthusiastic about spending a lot of money in Afghanistan. But basically, it will be sorted out in the in the region for two reasons. First, nobody in the region really wants the Afghan state to collapse, and um, uh, and uh, the Taliban will have to accommodate. You know, if they have no money and they're already running completely out of money, whatever offer they get, they will have to accept. So vis-a-vis uh, -vis America and Europe, what the Taliban can say, okay, fine, if you don't want to deal with us, then the part of the deal that uh, supposes we uh, kind of uh, quarantine, if you like, with the global jihadists, that's not fine anymore. You know? So let me do what we need to do. Uh, and you know, we're not affected by the deal anymore. You don't respect it, we don't, we don't we want respect it. And the, to the Europeans, they will say, and they already say, there will be a big wave of refugees coming your way, you know, of course. Um, why should we even try to stop them? And especially, we don't mind if illiterate farmers come there, you know. We don't need them because we don't know what to do with all these guys. You know, we, we need doctors, we need nurses, we need uh, engineers. We try to stop them from going. But if there are unemployed uh, guys willing to go, please, you know, for us, it's just a relief. So they will, they will, you know, play this kind of uh, games. It's not only a game. I think they will actually do it, you know, because um, it's only weapons they have, you know. So they will blackmail the Americans and the Europeans with the 
the only way they can. So the global jihadists are welcome to stay, one, and two, a lot of refugees will come their way and we will not do anything to uh, to prevent it. Whereas COVID can't do much to prevent it anyway. We are going to wrap. So any final comments for us? What you see is the key issues for Afghanistan in this new era of uh, Taliban rule after the U.S. withdrawal. Well, they have a lot of issues. Um, I do think that uh, the relation with uh, American and Europe will not be good because I don't see how, especially with the Afghanis being, you know, key part of government, how the Americans going to recognize that. In fact, the Americans already said they wouldn't recognize one of the reasons why the Afghanis made it to the cabinet because the leadership felt, you know, why, why argue with the Afghanis when we don't actually get anything from either Washington or Europe? They're not going to recognize us for years to come. And we, we don't, we're not in a position to think, you know, five years, 10 years from now, we need to survive now. We need to keep the Taliban united and we need to align with, you know, those regional powers who are able and willing to pay. And the list is not very long. Antonio Giustosi, Senior Research Fellow at the Royal United Services Institute and Visiting Professor at King's College London. His books include The Islamic State in Khorasan and the Taliban at War. Professor Giustosi, thank you very much. Thank you, Tim.